You're listening to the Sands Pants Network. Home of comedy, culture, adventures and ghosts. Hey everyone, welcome to Bookish. I'm George Dimrellis. This is a show where we ask you what's your story and what does it say about you. Today on the show, she started in Australia. She studied also in Finland and is now based in France. She's a postdoctoral researcher interested in the similarities between music and language in relation to syntax, rhythm, memory, and attention. Anna Fivash, it's great to have you on the show. Hello, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I, I definitely took that intro from one of your many summaries. Uh, did that, it does sounded that quite familiar. Of... Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Look, why fix what's not broken? That's how I see it. It was, yeah. it was perfect. It was perfect. Nice. Yes. Yeah, so, so you are now based in Lyon in France, although right now the weather's probably a bit cooler, maybe? Weather, weather not amazing at the moment. It's kind of, it was been snowing all weekend. It's kind of zero degrees. Um but when you're inside, it's okay. It's still beautiful. Yeah. There's still baguettes and saucisson and chocolate and all the good things. So, ah, you, you know, yeah, no, I'd, I'd happily take the cold in that, to be honest. That sounds delightful. Exactly. And you have the mulled wine, so it's okay. It's fine. Ah, it's, you're sounding more French by the second. Okay. <laughs> um, do you, so, can you speak French? Do you need to speak French being there? So I'm I'm trying actively learning. It's a it's a difficult kind of language to learn. But when I when I moved here, I I started learning pretty quickly because it is hard to get around without any French. Um, but yeah, I've been I've been kind of learning French. Is I've been here f- almost five years now, or four four to five. So I can I can get by. I can have conversations, and I don't sound too much like an idiot. But we <laughs> we're getting closer at that. Oh, that's that's great. Yeah, that's that's good. So what was why did you go there? Why why are you in Lyon? Uh, so basically, it was for the job. Um, so I did my PhD in music and language um, syntax, the structure of music and language. And I've always been interested in music and language. And kind of you have to find the next job after your PhD. And one of my friends, actually, Re- Rebecca Gelding, who who you were you were talking to recently, I think, she found she was she's really great at Twitter, huh. and she found a tweet that was just like a screenshot of an email that was a job description for a job in Lyon, looking at music and language and rhythm, which is which is super interesting. I hadn't looked at rhythm at that stage, so I yeah I applied. Um, I had an interview, and then I then I got it. So I literally finished my PhD and then moved three weeks later to France so I did a bit of my Duolingo before but you know finishing the PhD and packing and moving countries it wasn't um didn't have a lot of time to learn so yeah yeah, yeah that's why okay. I came for the job and it's, it's awesome it's really cool so. right okay um yeah because I well we can talk about it with this so just quickly and, and like because you started off it seemed like in psychology before moving to focus on music as well is that right yeah, yeah, and it and it's music psychology as well. So like my my bachelor was all psychology, and the idea was to become a psychologist. But then kind of things changed, and I did a, a, a research year, like the honors year in Australia. Um, you guys know what that means. Here I can't explain it like that. Yeah, but yeah. So then I was like, okay, well, I needed to do a research project. Love psychology, love the mind. What's how do people think? But my other kind of love is music. So basically, I kind of put those together, and that's how I ended up doing this and then I just kind of kept following that so that sounds like the exact idea of following your passion oh totally honestly yeah. that's that's just what I've been doing and it's worked really well so far I hope it keeps going yeah. that's uh that's great so uh, is that um do, when you say you were into music like I'm assuming more than just like I like listening to some songs did you play as well or like when you say into music what does that mean yeah yeah so I I was playing classical guitar since I was about six 
So right, I tried piano, but it didn't work out. <laughs> so I was like, oh, guitar is so much cooler. You know, when you're six, you want to play guitar. Um, so I was, yeah, learning guitar, got really into classical guitar. So up till I was maybe 18 and my parents told me they'd stop paying for it. <laughs> um, so then I kind of kind of stopped classical and went more into kind of um, court, you know, writing songs and just playing for fun and, and singing and everything. So, yeah, I guess all of that background kind of led me into this as well having the because you need a bit of music knowledge to be able to do the good music research because if you have to make the stimuli and everything you need to know a little bit about it so actually a lot of people in my field are musicians which is really nice and when you go to conferences there's lots of dancing and jamming and stuff so it's really cool <laughs> that is that is cool all right that sounds like a lot more fun than other conferences to be honest that's yeah i really lot, think lot, it is too. <laughs> yeah a lot less dry <laughs> Mm. Yeah, yeah, totally. The okay, so let's let's go with the book. That, that that's really interesting. So, because I, I actually want to talk about, yeah, it's, it sounds perfect. So let's w- let's go with your book, and then we'll jump around from there. Um, so your book of choice for today is. So I have it right here. I'll show you, but no one else can see. But it's called Music, Language, and the Brain, um, by Anirudh Patel, and this is kind of like the tomb of music and language uh, research. It's it's from two thousand and eight, so it's a bit older, but it still has all of the kind of foundations, I suppose, um, across all of the different ways that we could look at similarities and differences between music and language. And that's because so, that's it sounds like this is a relatively new field in terms of trying to science it, science yeah, really. it, because obviously the discussion <laughs> of music and language, it seems to be ancient, but uh, in terms of uh, yeah, trying to actually look at the, I guess I've got to say, neurochemical makeup of what the similarities are, is that relatively yeah. new? Beautiful. I wouldn't say chemical, but maybe neurobiological. Neurobiological. I see. I was trying to say fancy words. I don't know. What it, it, it sounded. Like. It sounded good. I'll take it. it no, no, no. Thank you for correcting it. <laughs> you could tell, I mean, there's chemicals like involved. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no. Neurobiological makeup. Yeah, because how the brain reacts to what it's hearing, essentially, and what how that the similarities between the two. Um, yeah. So, so, I mean, yeah. It, with that, okay. So, what is that? Like, how are they similar? I guess is the first question. What and is that a new real? Like, I'm guessing it's. Did people always know that these things were similar? Actually, take a step back. How are they similar? I guess is the first question. Okay, these are lots of good questions. So, I'm going to start yeah, just. No, that's why I'm trying to with, go slow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I'm just going to go with the backwards thing. So, the idea of music kind of as a communicative thing, um, like. I don't want to say as a language, but as a way to communicate is very, very old. Like you've got the ancient philosophers, Darwin, Plato, like everyone. Not, I don't know if Darwin would be classified as a philosopher, but anyway, um, you have a lot of people in the olden days saying that, yeah, yeah, music is really important and it's great for the brain. And obviously music and language have both been around forever. And there's lots of kind of evolutionary um, things there, which we could discuss later a little bit if you want. But um, yeah, the, the idea of actually looking at music as a formal kind of scientific um, exploration um, pathway is pretty new. I'd say the last 20 or 30 years. No, more than that, for maybe 40 years. <laughs> I started 10 years ago, so then it was 20, maybe 30, 40 yeah. now. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, so basically it was kind of starting to figure – so we had a lot more research about language um, because language is more kind of obviously important, you know, because we have to communicate, we use language to communicate. But um, – people started thinking, okay, maybe we can find similar kind of neural responses in music as well. So there's a lot of th- cool things. So when you, when you, basically when you make um, 
errors in language. So if you make a, a meaning error, like my dog ate socks for breakfast, something like this, your brain has this specific response, right? And so people were trying to say, oh, what if we can find this specific response in music too? Like, do, does the brain do the same thing? So it kind of started like this, looking at if we kind of make a really bad chord, like you're playing a nice piece of music and then you go, oh, like this out of key thing. Does the brain respond in the same way? And actually what they found was it wasn't the same as the meaning response in the brain. So it wasn't like, a, we call it semantic, if the meaning of language or the meaning of music, but it was more a, a structural response. So if you have like, um, like a grammatical error in language, for example, I'm not good at coming up with these quickly, but... Um, like dog, cat, ate pizza, something sure. like that. Like You're getting, good at this. Getting, okay. getting the words wrong, I guess. Yeah, that's what you mean. Like a more yeah, fundamental like, flaw than just like a meaning being strange is like, yeah. Right. Yeah. Because like exactly, your dog could eat socks for breakfast. You just wouldn't expect it, right? But yeah, with yeah. the with the syntactic error, the the meat the structure is bad. You can't you can't say that in language. So it's kind of similar in music. If you have a really out of key chord, um, your brain responds in the same way as if you have a grammatical error in language. And this is kind of indistinguishable, which was, this has kind of happened, this is also Annie Patel who discovered this kind of, the really close similarity in how the brain is responding in music and language to these structural errors. And that's kind of really cool and suggests that maybe we we don't have separate brain areas to do a very similar thing, actually. It's just we we use the same brain, it's economical, right? We use the same brain areas to kind of process both music and language. So this is kind of a general, <laughs> general area. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that's, uh, I mean, that's, okay, there's so much there already. Okay. So the first thing I'd want to ask, uh, and this might be impossible to answer, but maybe the studies haven't been done, but is that a learnt thing? Like, as in, is that something which with, when it comes to music and a rhythm, uh, not rhythm, although I want to talk about that as well. I'm very interested in the rhythm side of things, yeah. but in terms of the notes, I guess it's interesting because like we're talking about harmony. We're talking about an off key does it always sound off to everyone is that is it so foundational a sound that we all agree on what it like it just sounds wrong on a human level almost is that yeah. how they've proven or is that is there any proof on that is there theories about that yeah this is a really nice question so basically we get our our knowledge of what chords what notes go together through kind of this is there's two kind of trains of thought about this right but the way I'm just going to tell you the one I kind of follow um is that we use kind of statistical learning or implicit learning so when we're a baby when we're even before we're born we're we're picking up on what types of notes go together right and that's that's statistical learning so if you even when you're learning a language you say okay these types of words always go together and these types of notes always go together so as you get older and older and you have more exposure to that musical or language system that's how you kind of develop this really strong sense of what sounds good and what sounds not good so there's a, this cultural side that you're, you are picking this up and that differs depending on your your specific culture too so you've got the kind of western music where um we kind of we, we have certain types of out-of-key notes, but you've also got a lot of other types of musical cultures where perhaps the same kind of out-of-key note wouldn't sound out-of-key. But saying that, there is also a kind of biological um, reason that the dissonant chords sound bad, right? So 
I think who was this? There was an, one of the ancient people who did great work looked at this consonance versus dissonance. Basically, if it if it sounds good or bad together, and that is also kind of a, a biological thing in our in our brain to a certain extent, like the ratios of how things go together. Um, so I, I think it's a, it's both basically. It's this whole nature nurture thing. Yeah, Again. yeah, but I mean, like, I guess, because, yeah, and uh, by the way, whenever I think ancient saying something, I always just go Aristotle, probably Aristotle, because uh, Aristotle's the first one to be, like, f- properly scientific about a broader range of things with, I'm, I'm geeking out now, but yeah. yes, okay, no, no, it's probably, Ar- I think, it, you know what, it could be Aristotle, I'll go with that. Yeah, he, he wrote the, uh, yeah, because he did some stuff on what, what is art and what makes good art and stuff, so this sounds like it would fall into yeah, that. Yeah, perfect, okay, we'll say Aristotle said this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the, so, I guess on that note, so you're saying that, um, there can be surface level differences where there is difference between cultures essentially, but there are more fundamental ones, which doesn't matter the culture. You're always going to yeah. get it wrong. That, that that sounds about, yeah, because this ties into, and like, it sounds like you've approached this more from the music side with this whole question. Uh, but this does make me think of like the language side, which it seems from my, obviously I'm not a, linguist but it seems like norm chomsky was the guy who kind of revolutionized the understanding there being like yeah language isn't something you learn it's the way he's it's phrased it's one of those great metaphors but it's, it's something that you grow <laughs> so you're yeah. born with it and then you just grow it in a certain way but you can't it's not a blank slate where you can do anything it's very much inbuilt and then you grow it in a certain way so it sounds like you're saying music falls into the same category so this is this is really interesting because this is kind of the big debate in the whole of science right <clears throat> like do we have it to begin with or do we grow it, basically? And I think Noam Chomsky's argument was that language is so complex that we can't we can't just learn it, right? It, there has to be something in our brain and there has it's this universal grammar. Like we have this in our brain already and then we kind of switch some switches depending on what language we end up in and then we, we can learn the language. Whereas the more statistical learning side is saying, look, we have so much input from our environment, like all the time. And when you're young, like parents are, are, are speaking to you in this infant-directed speech, um, really emphasizing the segments in the in the, in the syllables between words, everything. So I'm not going to pick a horse on that one, but um, but basically you've got these two sides, and and really in the end, you 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 were born with a brain, right? You have something there already, and then you kind of hone it into whatever culture you're in and whatever languages and experiences you have. So, yeah, yeah, um, yeah no, that's pick a side. Come on, Anna, let's go. I know, <laughs> I know. Is, we've got to be more bold here. Pronouncements is done. I mean, I am, I am more the on the. Yeah, no, I am more on the statistical learning side. I'll, I'll give you that. Um, mm-hmm. But obviously, um, Chomsky is an amazing thinker, and uh, he's kind of gone through all these kind of revolutions in, in linguistics where every time he releases a book, the whole field kind of changes. Um, and it's really, it's really, yeah, I'm not a linguist. I'm, I'm a psychologist who is kind of specialized in music and language. And, and so, yeah, I, I'm not on the linguistic <laughs> pathway, but it's super interesting how that has developed. And, and that's just really kind of quickly going back. That's when music started becoming more of a, something that people were kind of really able to study when um, some Lerdahl and Jackendorf released a book looking at them, generative musical syntax basically it's called the generative theory of tonal music and they kind of put in principles that were kind of similar to the linguistic principles and from that that was 1983 so that was kind of the first formal I mean there were ones before but this was the first one you could really say okay I'm going to test this 
And yeah, I yeah. guess that's where the science side kind of came out a bit stronger. Yeah. I mean, like I, I, cause yeah, it's, it's just that foundation because that core value, cause you mentioned it somewhere, but like, cause I guess one of the examples I think of is, uh, I'm not a musician at all, but like I did, I actually played a bit of guitar when I was younger, but not much and stopped not very well. But I have some slight appreciation and a piano as well. Like at least I understand chords and like how they logic of what they are. And I always noticed one thing I always found was funny is if I'm sitting on the piano, all I have to do is press one of the notes a few times and then my brain kind of goes, okay. And then you start going up the scale from that note and your brain knows where the next note is meant to be. And then you just reset, you just go play the next note and then you can like kind of go and then you're like, oh no, that should be flat. And I always wonder how much that is, like innate or whether that's like, yeah, whether you're learning that or that's just the harmony of the universe, essentially. So is there like a- That's, that's definitely learned, I'd say. That's um, learned, okay. But the, but the fact that those notes are the ones that go together could be more innate <laughs> in terms of in terms of the acoustic structures of that, you know, if it's consonant, but then, but then we've kind of created these kind of scales and everything. Um, yeah, uh, but like that's us putting a human attempt on these natural. Because I guess yeah, that this is why I find it so interesting. Because we talk about music and language and the, how its impact on the brain. I guess it's like, are there sounds in nature which sound better? Because <laughs> that's kind yeah. of what we're saying with this. We're saying there's certain sounds which sound better or not, and like yeah, then we're just formalizing it almost. But it's already there in a yeah neurobiological sense. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah, I totally say that. I think that's. Um, I, th- I think it was Aristotle, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, no, no, no. But I think it's something to do with kind of the the frequencies in the pitches as well. So when you play a note, that's a certain frequency. So so an A note on the piano, the middle A is 440 hertz, I think. And then you can kind of play kind of harmonics of this and you can kind of different notes because of their frequencies and how they interact in your ear, um, they actually sound better. So our ear in kind of inside in the, in the cochlea, you kind of have the, all these, this kind of, I won't go too much into detail. I know it's a bit boring, but um, no, I'm, I'm, in, I'm engaged. It's okay. okay cool, cool. <laughs> but basically as you get kind of higher in frequencies, it's harder to distinguish between different notes basically so when you're kind of lower there's kind of a special range for humans that we're really good at and we can really distinguish very small differences um in pitch but as you go higher the kind of the the ways of 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 telling the difference gets broader right so it's harder to Mm. tell the difference so I think it's related to this in in terms of your kind of upper harmonics. <laughs> Too much detail again, but basically, if if they're not sounding well, if they're not sounding good together, that's also based on your ear and and what we can perceive. So I think really we have this kind of innate structure that we're born with, and then yeah, based on this, we have created these whole systems. But there are differences between kind of Western music structure, which we know the best, I would say. Um, and different musical structures. So even though we have some similarities in terms of basic consonants and dissonance, like what sounds good and bad generally, there are also differences in the scales. So mm. that just in terms, yeah, in terms of how they're put together and what goes with what in a larger sense. Yeah. Um, the because the reason I'm like going on this a bit because yeah, it, it's a direction I wanted to go with it because I know in one of the things when I was looking at it, you uh, I don't know if you wrote it yourself or something there where it was like. It might have actually been in the review for the book, 
um, human, uh, the brain and yeah, language and music and human brain. Um, <laughs> it, it, it mentioned specific, I think you use the phrase distinctly human, uh, skill. Look, Matt, I, I should be really, I should have just read it out <laughs> before. Uh, it's, uh, what do I have it here? Uniquely human yeah. abilities. I think it says something like that when it's describing music and language as uniquely human abilities. It, it specifically says that in the, uh, in the blurb, I think. Totally. Um, and, and that's I think the part even which in the I was... introduction. Yeah, yeah. So the fact that it's calling both these traits uniquely human is interesting to me because, like, language, it's pretty obviously uh, in its complexity uniquely human, but, like, even now I'm not sure. And with music, in a weird way, I guess I it almost seems more human appreciating music, but is it uniquely human? I guess so, like, is that something you would know anything about? Is it uniquely, like, especially with music, which is your skill set? <laughs> Do animals like a good tune? Like, you know, like- <laughs> um, so, okay, this is a complicated question. And so there's there's a lot more research coming now looking at how, how animals perceive pitch, rhythm, everything. Um, and basically, yeah, the general consensus is that music and language are uniquely human um, in terms of the way that we think of them, right? But there's also... Um, like obviously birds in particular, they have a very complex um, bird pitch. They, they, they sing songs to each other and they sing songs that have meaning and communication between each other. And you can, you can teach animals to tap in time. Um, the thing with that is that typically humans, when we're tapping along to something, we, we predict it, right? So we tap just before. But with animals, they're kind of showing more and more that they're tapping just after. So they can learn the task, but they're reacting. They're not predicting so much. Right. Um, so in in that kind of sense, I mean, obviously, well, not obviously to me, um, humans have a more com- these more complex systems, but I wouldn't rule out that animals also have kind of differences in terms of music. Like they they they, it's different, definitely, and that's. One of the difficult things about music and language is that we can't study it in in animals in the same way. Like this is why vision audition to a point, like really basic audition, um, we can, well, a long time ago we were looking at in kind of rats or birds or whatever, even now a little bit, um, and we can understand how the brain works. But for music and language, we really have to do it in humans. Um, right. And so it's a lot harder to kind of, figure out what's happening in the brain because we can't go that deep until people die, you know, and then even then you can't hear the music language. So it's you have to do it in a live humans and that's difficult. So Yeah, I mean, wouldn't it also be better to do it in a live one where you can see the like obviously with the recent technology, MRIs and that, to actually see those impacts, you would need them to be alive? Yeah, totally. <laughs> I was just thinking like you can see the structure of the brain. Like, I'm just I'm thinking back to when people were discovering the brain. There was a lot of autopsies and kind of figuring out where things are. Um, And in animals, you can present like a flashing light and you can see what happens in the brain because you can implant electrodes really deeply into the brain. I don't do any of this research, by the way. (laughs) I wouldn't be good at at doing these things to animals, but I'm not not saying it's a good thing. Um, But, yeah, Yeah. Uh, humans, you, you have to be less invasive, basically. Yeah, I guess so. I, I just because you mentioned it specifically with the bird song, because that's probably an example where um, you would have a much, much more thorough knowledge of this than me. But it's almost like bird songs sound good usually, but then again, maybe they don't. Like, so do bird songs have like have they done tests on whether birds have a, a harmony 
in their ear as well? And is it different to humans? Like, is in the certain off keys that we would 100% put in the discordant category that birds love? Or is there like not that? Like, is that something which has got any research on? Um, great question. And I really don't know. <laughs> so I don't want to kind of make something up, but I would say, yeah, when I've, as a, just a person, not a scientist, when I've heard bird song, um, it sounds, yeah, it sounds good. Like it's, it's, it sounds consonant, right? Um, there are people doing this studies, so I wouldn't say, you know, I just don't know about it basically. Yeah. yeah. No, no, that's fair enough. That's uh, yeah. Just, yeah. Just but it's cool. It's cool. Part. Yeah. You, it's so you're cool. getting, you're getting out of my expertise now with the animal stuff. So. <laughs> Okay, well, let's bring it back to your expertise then. So what exactly are your research stuff at the moment looking at in terms of the music focus versus the language with the brain? Yeah, so right now I'm looking at rhythm. So a lot of the studies, so I'm, I'm working with Barbara Tillman in Lyon, and she's she's really great. She's doing a lot of research on rhythmic priming. Um, and this is the idea that if you kind of play a really regular sequence, like do, 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 like a really regular beat, and you play that for kind of a 30 seconds or so, the idea is that your your brain starts to entrain to this rhythm, right? So your your kind of neural oscillations, your brain waves, start to kind of synchronize with the music that you're hearing, if it's regular, if it's predictable. And the idea here is when you stop the music, your brain waves keep going, right? They don't just stop immediately. And then that could kind of help the processing of speech. So then what we do is we we present really regular music for a while with the idea to entrain the brain to this to this particular rhythm. And then we present speech stimuli, um, like two-second sentences, just spoken naturally. Um, and we ask kids, we ask adults, was this sentence grammatically correct or incorrect? And basically the kind of comparison, so we do this with regular rhythms or irregular rhythms. So irregular rhythms you can't hear there's no rhythmic structure, right? It's just like doop, 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 doop. doop. You yeah. just, you, there's no structure. Then what we what we really see across lots of studies is that people, especially children, are better at these grammaticality judgments after the regular rhythms compared to the irregular rhythms. Okay, I was gonna say, so it messes up their brain, like understanding a bit, doing the wrong rhythm. Not messes up in a bad way, but like as in it throws that out. Their measurement device. Well, I, we, we kind of actually think that the regular rhythm is kind of boosting the perception of the speech signal rather than the regular is just kind of like a control. And so we have we also have other controls like environmental sounds because like you have to compare, you have to tell if it's boosting or, or, or not boosting, right? Um, cost or benefit sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So what we've kind of shown across a few studies now that actually the – because when when you're when you have a regular rhythm, your kind of your attention is not constant, right? Because we can't we can't constantly keep attention on something. So our brain is really clever, and it predicts when we should put attention. So if you've got like a, a regular rhythm that just keeps going, our brain is sending kind of attention bursts at these points in time. And the idea is that if you if you then play sentences, the cool thing about this is that the speech signal actually has similar frequencies often, like um, the, the recurring rhythmic structures are kind of similar to music. So um, the idea is that your attention is directed to speech in kind of the good areas, so you're you're perceiving the signal better because your attention is more directed. So when you, uh, yeah, I'm trying to understand that. So you mean like as in when someone's talking to you and you're perceiving their speech? Is that what you mean? 
Yeah, totally. Oh, I was talking about in our experiments, but also, yeah, when you're listening to someone, you're paying attention. There's also a rhythmic structure in speech, right? So when I'm talking like this, there's certain, there's a certain rhythm to it. And in, in English, it's particularly, it's, it's based on when you put the emphasis, like the stress. So there, stress. I put the stress on the syllable. Um, and our brain, it, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that our brain is following this rhythmic structure in terms of where we put the stress on the syllables. Treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their Golden Glow body set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow & Go facial set provides spa-level results at home. Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM. Right, so because, I mean, obviously no one talks in a very, like some people do, in a very monotone or very repetitive way, but I feel like most people don't really fall into that in any obvious way. You're saying they actually do, but you can't tell. Is that what you're saying? Or No, not necessarily. It's just, it's not... Obviously, speech isn't isochronous. Like, it's not completely bam, 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 you know. But um, when you look across lots of speech, you actually have around four or five hertz, which means four or five times per second, there's regularities. So this is the – when we say a syllable, like syllable is each each bit, we do that four to five times a second when we're speaking. And in terms of when we put our stress – yeah, if you think about it, so one second, one second. So you're saying is in, even in the sentences I'm making right now, there's a lot of words going in per second, which are going to be alternating in dip, in their rhythm. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And, and here you'd really talk about syllables. So the the because syllables kind of give the speech units, and then they're grouped into the words. So basically, the, across lots of different languages, which is cool as well. Generally, there's um, a peak around four or five hertz, four or five times per second, where we see syllable, the syllable rate. And then we have another peak around two hertz, two times a second, which is where we put the stress. So you're saying lots of syllables, but every kind of two two times a second, you're putting more emphasis on the syllable. Really? So and like that's there's some irregularity in that, even though, because yeah, like I said, we feel like we would be varying quite a lot in how we say stuff when we're talking, da, 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 but actually... There's some regularity and uniformity within that. Yeah, totally. Wow. So you kind of, th- this was one of the other big things in, in music language science. People were trying to find if if speech was isochronous somehow or like regular, like like rhythm, like music rhythm. And it, and it isn't, right? It really isn't. But there are, in terms of if you look at kind of the, pro- you, you meant to call it in terms of prominence and grouping and stress. So this is how we kind of understand speech rhythm now. Yeah, there's definitely similarities within languages, across languages, um, where we're kind of speaking in somewhat somewhat of a regular way and that helps other people perceive us better, right? So if someone suddenly stops their, their speech or or gets really slow or fast or something, we we have to change our predictions of, of what they're going to do. Um, and this is kind of cool as well. Like if you're listening to someone who speaks really, really fast, 
often the other person's matches their speech rate, for example, because that helps. This is really important perception production loop in the brain for speech and for music. So if, if you're kind of perceiving someone speaking really fast, you kind of end up speaking really fast too to kind of be able to match their speech rate and be able to better predict what they're going to say. Right. Okay. That's really interesting. Like, I mean, the, uh, the first thought that comes to mind is, I guess, if you want to be capturing people's attention easily, it would be to really modulate your speech a lot during a, yeah, while talking to someone, like go slow, up, down and all that stuff that, that just immediately makes your brain just get high, almost be like, what's going on here? And just pay attention more. Yeah, totally. But also you're, you're, you're ruining their predictions as well, right? It's not just, so, so your brain has to work harder as well if that happens. So do you reckon that could have an impact on people's uh, retention or something like that? Oh, good question. Come across? Typically, well, <laughs> good question. So if you're, <laughs> if you're paying more attention to something, often you remember it better, right? Mm. Um, yeah, so possibly. Yeah, it's just making, it's just waking it up, forcing it to engage more than just like sitting back and being like, yeah, I know what this, I know what this rhythm is. I don't need to do anything else. Okay, I'll... As a standard comedian, I will try to use this in future as much as possible. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. I, I, was just, I was just thinking it's a good example with like a foreign accent um, because you're not, this is what I get a lot in French, right? You ha- It's hard to, the speech rhythm, when I speak in French, my speech rhythm is not as the, a normal French person would, would say. So actually really French people who don't speak English have have more trouble to understand me because they don't understand the kind of the speech structure of English. But my friends who speak English as well and I'm speaking to them in French, they understand me a lot better. So if you have kind of, you really need to have an idea of to be able to predict what they're trying to say basically. Yeah, yeah, uh, to be able to understand it almost in that sense. Like, yeah, that's interesting because like you always think of uh, accents being more about, you know, the sound and like how it inflects, but like you don't actually think about now the set rhythms that every language would have, which would all be unique. Yeah, it's it's super important. Like if you're like, <laughs> so there's this kind of distinction with um, uh, sentences, or languages that are stress time. So you, there's kind of similar intervals between the stresses and more syllable timed in terms of the similar intervals between the syllables. So French is more a syllable timed language, even though there's not so much research to support this. I'll put that out there as well. But um, there's kind of a perceptual difference between French and English, for example. Um, And really, like, I have to be more monotone in French and more kind of specific in terms of when I'm speaking and if I put too much stress like I say I used to go into the the bakery saying bonjour um and they they didn't like that they immediately knew that I wasn't French because (laughs) there's so much the inflection is too high it's not the right I'm putting too much bonjour like yeah say bonjour it's really important Uh, yeah. yeah yeah So you have to learn the rhythm of the speech as well if you're learning a new language, for sure. There's a lot of differences between speech rhythms and also a lot of similarities. So, yeah, we've got it all. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess that's where, like, the comparison, like, to go the speech thing and maybe in music as well, the best thing, obviously, it's not a a cold, uh, double-blind experiment, but looking at completely different cultures and seeing what is the same versus what's different, and that's the best way you can develop some sort of universal theory of music and language is that yeah totally and this is happening more and more recently um people are realizing how important this is um and so nori jacobi is someone who's really great looking at rhythm 
across different cultures. So he kind of goes into, I don't know, I think last one was Botswana. I'm not quite sure. Into these remote tribes where they haven't been exposed. See, the other thing, it's getting harder and harder to find places that aren't exposed to Western music. But they're kind of finding these small tribes that, that don't have exposure to Western music and then figuring out, yeah, they're what they find good or bad or what they find rhythmic or their rhythms. And it's, it's really cool to look at this. Um, and this is really important research because we're so in, immersed in our culture that we have trouble, like we can't look evolutionarily, right, because there's no, the sound can't be fossilized. That's one of the problems. Music and language, it, it happened and we have we have some evidence at some points, like someone made a little bone flute or there's a cave that looked like people might have danced, but we really don't have good lasting evidence for music and language. So it's kind of the second best thing is to go to these tribes where they really they haven't had exposure to anything else and just to see if they have similarities to the Western music and language, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's funny. That, okay, I guess uh, straight away with that, my thought would be that music there might be variation, like even though I think there's probably would be a lot of universality, but with rhythm, rhythm's rhythm. Like as in you can't, like uh, stable rhythm's a stable rhythm. Everyone's going to like that everywhere, right? That's that's just, that's your brain's predictive. I mean, it's so fundamental rhythm. Like how could that be different? No, totally. But like in terms of the like syncopation, like what kind of ratios of syncopation are enjoyable? Like I'm not going to do it, but like there's all these separate, like all these little bits, right? Um, And music isn't just one bit. It's happening at multiple levels. And this is something I haven't, I haven't said yet, but one of the most important kind of similarities between music and language is in terms of hierarchical structure. And that kind of just means that, we're not just looking at something on one level. Like if we have the do do do, just one beat. Actually, there's lots of lots of things happening. You have like your stress, for example. You have a do 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 do. Like you have kind of different levels of structure, both in rhythm and in terms of the kind of content as well. Like right. in if you look at a, a language phrase, I think language is often easier to explain, and then you go to kind of the music side, but if you have you have all your individual words, which are grouped into like little phrases, um, which are grouped into sentences, which are grouped into bigger structures. So basically, the idea is that you're looking at multiple levels, and that's what maybe could be different across cultures. I'm not sure. Right, because um, I think sorry, with rhythm, especially, it's like dancing is obviously a big part of dancing, and obviously dancing is different between cultures. But again, I keep going back to this just because of the human uniqueness thing. And you might not know an answer to this, but do animals dance? Oh, great question. Actually, I do have an answer for this. So have you seen on YouTube, there's all these videos of cockatoos that are like synchronizing with the rhythm? <laughs> that's that's what I'm thinking. Like, I don't know if it was cockatoos, but I'm, I feel like I remember bopping heads from like, yeah, birds or something where they're just hearing something. So yeah, that's what I was yeah. wondering. So, so obviously there's a lot of, so I think someone looked across, Maybe Annie Patel as well looked across all these YouTube videos of animals dancing just to check like what's happening. But the problem with that is that we often can't tell if the person behind the camera is is kind of giving them a signal, right? Like like with the horse who learned how to count. Do you hear about this? Like actually someone behind the camera was giving clues which made the horse understand what 
he meant them to do. Um, so actually, Annie Patel did this study with this cockatoo called Snowy. It's if you type cockatoo Snowy into YouTube, um, and they actually so they played. I think Michael Jackson was his favorite um, music. Okay. And they, they, they played it and the, the cockatoo would dance and actually had different levels, like would dance at one beat and then dance faster, like kind of was kind of doing it at multiple levels. And then what they did was they sped up the music or they slowed down the music to see if the cockatoo could actually follow that. And, and it seems like it could. So I think definitely with training, they can do it. Um, mm. I don't know how innate it is, but I think, yeah, I wouldn't rule it out at all. Let's see. I, I just, I just, you know, I just want a universal beat. You know, there's a beat yeah. to the universe that we all dance to. But even like, even like when you're in a concert and people are clapping along, like some people are clapping on one beat and some people are clapping faster or slower. Like you can see, even there in humans, there's a lot of variation on where we're feeling the beat as well. All right. Okay. So people just getting it wrong. Who maybe just don't have the rhythm down as much. <laughs> yeah. Which also, I know I do. Also. When I try to move, talk, and clap my hands, I'm, my rhythm's way off. But yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess on, on this topic of like uh, what you're studying as well, like what is the actual, and I'm not saying that I think study for its own sake is amazing, but like what is the real world kind of benefits of like what you're doing now with the grammatical prediction thing or anything else related to this? What is like, and it doesn't have to benefit. You can make this many dollars with it, but like, as in, what is the actual like use of it? I guess is there, is it outside its fear? Is there is there views to its benefit? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So with the with the rhythm stuff that we're doing now, so basically you've got two sides, right? You've got the fundamental research. So this is kind of what I'm really interested in. How does the brain work, right? That's kind of this fundamental question, like a music and language processed in similar areas and what does that mean? But you've also got this really applied side, especially in terms of rhythm, because there's a lot of, so the stuff we're doing, if we can help people predict speech who have troubles with prediction, for example, we can benefit their language processing. So so we, we've been studying children who have developmental language disorder. Um, it used to be called specific language impairment and also dyslexia. So if often one of the theories behind why people with dyslexia or DL, DLD is a developmental language disorder have trouble with, with phonological awareness or reading or, or kind of speech processing sometimes is that perhaps their neural oscillations aren't um, tracking or aren't synchronizing so well to the speech signal. So if we can train, like, because music is so regular, so predictable, we can use music to to kind of train these neural mechanisms to help the speech processing. So it's really applied here. And there's a lot of research looking at music training in general and music rhythm training in particular to kind of boost different types of language skills. And there's a lot of research kind of um, getting it's getting bigger is kind of more, more recent as well but we're getting a lot more kind of evidence to suggest that music rhythm training can help language processing in in typically developing children and also children with developmental language disorders so it's really applied on that side as well yeah yeah i could mean and i mean uh, surely that would mean there's benefits for the, the other side of the age spectrum so for people getting older and trying to have memory impairment yeah like that could help there as well i guess 
Totally. Like, um, there's a lot of research on dementia. No, no, everything you're saying is good. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a lot of research on dementia in particular and how, because music is, is so powerful because it activates so many areas in your brain. And you have really often, you have really strong emotional and memory kind of ties to music. So there's all these great videos of people who have dementia, who you play them their favorite song from 50 years ago and suddenly they're, they're back, you know, they're, they're dancing, they're moving, they're singing, they're, they're remembering. Um, and same like with Parkinson's disease, often they have trouble walking regularly and there's a lot of kind of staccato, I get oh, what's the word, um, not able to move fluidly basically. Mm. Um, but if you play like a, a rhythm, suddenly they're dancing, they're, they're moving. So one of, one of the ideas is that if your internal timing mechanisms are a bit impaired somehow, and this happens across a lot of different disorders. The, the timing is really important. If you're presenting some kind of regular rhythm, actually you can you can really help movement. You can help speech, like in stuttering, for example. Um, there's a lot of training to help people speak more fluently. And even in a, like in aphasia, so people who have a stroke and lose their language ability, there's something called melodic intonation therapy where you can take people. I think this was in the King's Speech. Have mm-hmm. you seen this movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Movie. Um, yeah right? So he, I think he couldn't speak or couldn't speak very well. And Stutter, you, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you give, you give music because music's generally processed on, on the right side of the brain, not completely, but um, you can rewire the, the networks on kind of the music side to, to process the speech, which is kind of the damaged area. So then if you start singing and you're tapping at the same time, so you have this rhythmic element and you're singing, how are you, something like this, you practice singing and and people with aphasia can often sing. And the goal is to make it less and less melodic and more and more like speech. Right. So there's loads of applications. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's beautiful already. Um, Like, doesn't that suggest though that there is a difference, music and language in the brain, if that's the case? Yeah, for sure. So there's both similarities and differences, which is what makes it super interesting. Um, So like language generally is more left hemisphere, like it's processed on the left side more and music is generally processed more on the right. I mean, so and there are different timescales involved and there are obviously kind of language has referential meaning like if I say a sentence you pretty much know what I mean what I'm trying to communicate but if I if I play beautiful music uh song it could mean different things to different people um so I think the power of music is that it is both similar and different to language so you can use the differences like the really regular predictable beats to then help language for example yeah I think it's 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 super fascinating because straight away my brain goes with that like because in my head i'll be like music's more fundamental than language simply just because the structures involved in language are much more complicated and whatever and music's just so pure in its expression and in its and it has it's more emotional essentially like because it's hitting you on that level so like i would almost look at music as the foundational thing that then language could spring from rather than vice versa if you know what i mean like that that's what I would think, but obviously I'm not a scientist. I mean, so. that's super interesting because people are trying to figure out like what came first, right? <laughs> it's like chicken or the egg sort of thing. Um, and one of the one of the theories is from from Darwin, of course, he's very great at these things. Um, there's this proto-language. So ba- the idea was that back in the day before music language were as we know it today, people kind of communicated in kind of 
like murmurs, like mm, mm, like different types of symbols and and kind of making different sounds. And basically the idea is that this system, so music and language were combined, right? We just made these sounds and it got more and more complex. And as it got more and more complex, language evolved for this is called referential meaning, like non-ambiguous, like you need to go to the shop and buy a, I don't know, milk, milk you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it must be milk. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we got really specific. So as, as our social groups got bigger and bigger, we needed to find a way to communicate, right? So, so lang- the idea here is that language developed to be able to communicate more specifically and music developed for the kind of more emotional side to kind of communicate emotions. There's a lot of theories of evolution of how music and language separated, what came first, whatever, but we really, I really like this idea that there was initially some kind of thing that was a combination of both and then we kind of split I guess it makes sense from the idea that uh, if you're starting off with grunts and growls like what a monkey would do, then slowly you would that would just get more elaborate without having any detail to it. So it'd just be more basic, and then ah, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, that's okay, that's and like the best way you can hear it if you can't do anything else would be modulating the pitch and the and the sound because yeah, like, oh, means scared, but ah, oh, means come over here, like as in yeah, so huh, and that's and very that- cool. That the, the the whole sad is kind of the lower pitch and the more slow. That I think that's very innate, actually. Um, how we we prescribe these emotions to sounds. Um, yeah, so I think that's really super interesting, and I always find it interesting how how similar languages are to each other. Actually, like there's pretty much a direct translation of every word. Like if you go from French to English, for example even though these are quite similar. I don't know. I find it really interesting. But there's a lot of theories about, yeah, how music and language evolved, basically. But typically, I think people people think that it evolved from something that was similar and then the different uh, important elements of each, um, music and language, were kind of developed. Yeah, yeah, which uh, I, I, I really love that theory a lot. I've never heard that before. And just because it, it puts music on the equal level almost with language in a way of, as a form of expression, even though oh, totally. we need yeah, language yeah. to survive in society. But, yeah, it puts music on that. Okay. That's so cool. We, yeah, we, yeah. We, actually, we actually did a study about this to see if we could kind of try to create evolution in the lab. <laughs> um, and it was kind of cool. Like we made these words that didn't mean anything like – Buffy Paga or something like this and we had we, we we recorded them and we gave them to the first participant we said Buffy Paga and the participant had to repeat it Buffy Paga um and we told it we told the participants what it meant what it meant like this is grass or this is hill or whatever and um then the next participant on a different different session heard the production of the first participant and so on. So it was kind of this idea of kind of a generational change and you see how things change. Um, and there were kind of differences between, yeah, the speech and the, the, or the, the pitch people used for um, emotional things and the pitch people used for referential things. So if we were trying to say, oh, this is a stone, this is a tree, um, people were more close on their syllables, like they were better able to recreate the syllables. But if we say, oh, this is sadness or this is tenderness or whatever, the syllables weren't so precise, but the pitch was really different. So, 
That's so cool. <laughs> I don't know if this is too much of a deep dive for anyone outside of me and you right now, but I find that <laughs> just so interesting. Like, because even in a communication point of view, it's almost like if you can remember that. I think sometimes we, uh, I know I have this habit horribly growing up where I just would not pay attention to anything. So, like, I feel like appreciating that can actually make you communicate better because you like understand what you're saying and what you're trying to get across almost. So, yeah, no, I, I, that's that's really. I love that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's cool. So I think we were kind of the first people to try to to, to show us evolution in a lab, which is almost impossible, right? But we have tactics like this, which is kind of cool. Um, mm. Yeah, no, I find it really interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, you've studied now for how many years? So it's understandable. Yeah, a while now. It's good. <laughs> yeah. Now, look, I could sit here and talk about this stuff all day, but I feel like we're going to get lost in the weeds if we go too far. The only other part I would want to say is how uh, – your love of this, so you came out from the music side. So the psychology side, you said psychology. It doesn't sound like this. It, yeah, is this psychology? Because the psychology I always picture as someone, you know, and their emotional state and stuff like that. Like the interaction here seems a bit more tenuous. Was that because you kind of always wanted to go in this direction, or am I completely mislabeling it, saying it's tenuous? Or yeah, no. So any- basically, psychology is is pretty much understanding how we work right how humans work so you've got this one side which is the more um uh, therapy side right where where we're trying to help people we're using like cognitive behavioral therapy or we're still trying to understand how the brain works but we're applying it to try to to help people with their problems right um but the other side of psychology which is what i am really interested in is cognitive psychology like how does the brain work and that's really so i would say i'm a cognitive psychologist now um specializing in in music psychology so how how does the is still the question how does the brain work and everyone <laughs> there's this nice meme or something saying that the um the brain tells us that the brain is the most complicated structure in the world you know um and we're all just trying to figure out our own brains and it's it's this yeah. super super complicated thing which is which is awesome but i think we're trying to figure out there's a lot of debate still in the field if music and language are totally represented in the brain in different ways or if there's some overlap or if there's no one says there's total overlap so usually we look in terms of this structure and and kind of how how it's processed in the brain but the idea is if we can if we have overlapping systems we can we can use one to help the other for example Mm. so i wouldn't i wouldn't say it's different and there's a lot of music therapy as well which people use music to to help people express their feelings if they if they can't express them verbally for example or or music training which can can like if you have a, a speech or language disability or disorder sorry like music could be a really nice way to to help train this system um without having to because obviously speech therapy is amazing for this and it focuses directly on the problem but music could be another way kind of more motivating fun social way to to activate and help these systems without having to focus on the same thing over and over. And and there's so much extra to music, like the emotion, the the repetition, like everything um, that really helps make, it kind of really activates a lot of the brain, whereas language is maybe a bit more specific. So I think music is really useful for that. Yeah. And I guess, uh, okay. And uh, one last thing before we sign off, and this might be, uh, is all music the same? <laughs> or is it like, and like, is there... You know, like there's the classical music, the grand big music, and then there's like obviously the more simplistic, simplistic, but like pop 
run-of-the-mill generic sort of stuff, which is kind of just very simplistic. Is there like a noticeable difference in the appreciation of each of these forms? And is there a difference in how like people engage with it? And like, I don't want to use the word better, but uh, appreciating a more complex piece of music is more engaging of all the facets of your brain, let's say. I'm totally leading you in a direction here how to answer the question, which you can totally <laughs> go in a different direction. But like compared to like popping, you'd be like, well, you like almost would you be like, oh, you're missing out just listening to that. You could lose this and it's actually better for you in all of these other ways beyond just obviously it's fun. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to pick a horse on that one either. But um, I think obviously the classical music um, often has a lot more expression and structural complexity, which is very, very valuable. And you had this whole Mozart effect from a while ago. Like if you play your baby Mozart, they're going to be smarter, like this whole thing. Um, and this yeah. has been debunked now, right? It's just music in general is, is great. And often, I mean, because it's like simplistic, like pop music, for example, it's still um, very rhythmic and very repetitive and, and good for your brain. Like I'm not going to, I don't think one type of music music is like better I'm putting my quotation marks here mm. but um I think all types of music if you enjoy it and if it brings you emotion if it like like if you, uh, feel, I, it. If you feel it yeah like my my old PhD supervisor um is looking at aggressive music um and whether this like what happens with people who love this really really aggressive music and actually it, it, it just matters that they love it, right? It doesn't matter what it is really. So it's more how you perceive the music and how, how it affects you, I would say. All music mm. is good, we'll say. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, uh, look, uh, I was trying to catch you on something, but no, you were playing. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. I think it, just enjoying it and actually listening to it and appreciating it, that's like the key regardless of what it is you're taking in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, all of it has really great things. It really, all of it helps the brain, I would say. <laughs> so. mm. Okay, cool. Um, well, look, there we've yeah, we've done a deep dive on <laughs> music. Like, I think I, I hope everyone else kept along, but I very much enjoyed that. I could talk about this stuff all day. I'm, I've always been focused on the language side, but the music fascinates me. Okay, well, let's call it there. Uh, is there any uh, last things you would say for any shout out you want to give? Sometimes people have a Twitter account or something, but is there anything you would say people look up for you or to follow? <laughs> Yeah, sure. I I do have a Twitter account. I'm a I'm a modern scientist these days. So it's um it's my name but with a five. So Anna, the number five, and then Ash. Okay, put that link in. Cool. Yeah, um okay. Awesome. Anything else before we sign off you want to talk about? No, it's great. Um okay. play music, listen to music, it's it's great. <laughs> and appreciate it, yeah, yeah. All right, awesome. Thanks yeah. a lot for that, Anna. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at Sans Pants Radio, then why not subscribe to SansPantsPlus.com? For as little as $5 a month, you could have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's SansPantsPlus.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.